What's up, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Millennial Manhood. I'm your host, Yavitz Djurjevic. Today, I had Marco from Whiteboard Finance on with me, and we had a fun conversation. We connected through one of our mutual friends, and Marco's been a full-time YouTuber for a while now. He's got millions upon millions of views on his channel, Whiteboard Finance, which really focuses on personal finance and just really teaching people the things that they need to know about some of the fundamentals and, and even some of the more complex uh, investing strategies. We talked about a lot of different concepts, such as taking a leap of faith and going to be a full-time YouTuber online and the opportunity of uh, being an entrepreneur. Check out his website, whiteboardfinance.com, and check out millennial-manhood.com. And here's the episode. Marco, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. Really pumped up. I actually, I learned about you. Actually, I had heard about you, but I didn't put two and two together. Just like random YouTube holes I went down. And then I heard heard your interview on my buddy Braden's pod, Brady's podcast. And I was like, I got to reach out to this guy. So Marco from Whiteboard Finance, uh, for folks who don't know who you are, Give uh, give the people a ten thousand foot view. Yeah, so uh, my name is Marco Zladek. I'm the founder and host of Whiteboard Finance. It's a YouTube channel, uh, basically teaching people all aspects of financial literacy. So basically, we cover personal finance, investing, entrepreneurship, um, pretty much ways to make money, uh, keep that money, and then I'm a big advocate of you know if you have your stuff together and you have your priorities right, um, why not spend that money as well? So all within reason, of course. So um, it's just teaching people about financial literacy. It's a thing that, you know, doesn't really get talked about a lot, especially um, at least in American households, it doesn't. Um, So I figured, hey, you know, if I can figure this stuff out, um, I started basically at the age of 18. I'm 32 now, Um, have a finance degree from the University of Akron, and I've pretty much worked in finance my entire career. Um, But the YouTube channel has done well enough over the past uh, two years or so to where it is my full-time endeavor. So I'm getting a lot of pleasure and providing a lot of value to people. Um, So right now I'm kind of living the life in my opinion. So (laughs) life is good. No, that's awesome. And and I remember hearing that on on the podcast interview you did, how it was your full-time job, which is such an interesting concept because it was another guest that I had. um, The episode was called Why We Hate Millennials. And she's done all these studies and research on why people hate millennials and then took it a step further and said, you know what, the number one job that like 12-year-olds want to have when they grow up, and it was a a YouTube celebrity. You know, 10, 15 years ago, that job, quote unquote, didn't even exist. Like it wasn't even really a concept. YouTube was Charlie bit me um, or like cat videos and things like that. So, so talk to me about that because there is something unique about going into that space and making that your full-time job because it is so relatively new to society. Like if you tell somebody, Hey, I'm going to go be a real estate agent and start a real estate company. People are like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. You know, that is a long-term thing that has existed forever. But saying, Hey, I'm going to take the leap of faith in the YouTube. I mean, there had to be some sort of fear or anxiety around that on your end as well. Yeah, for sure. So I'll tell anyone that's trying to start a quote unquote, you know, side hustle or a passion project or, you know, a podcast such as this one. um, I feel that once your side hustle income at least surpasses your full-time income uh, for at least three to six months, then you should really start taking it seriously and considering, okay, you know, maybe this is a viable project that could be a full-time income Um, But I always advise people not to jump ship too quick because sometimes people get excited and guess what, you know, a couple months later, you're not making the same income that you thought you would and you already put in your two weeks at your W-2, you know, corporate job and now you're Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, screwed, if you will. Um, So to answer the first part of your question, I never thought that I'd be a quote unquote YouTuber. Um, I always knew that I'd be uh, a business owner of some sort or an entrepreneur of some sort. Um, so I do treat my YouTube channel as a small business because it literally is. Um, so there's a bunch of different ways that you can monetize from YouTube. Um, you know, most people think of just like ad revenue and things like that. But once you actually start building an audience and start building trust and rapport, and you're not some you know snake oil salesman or trying to take advantage of people, and you really are providing good value. Um, there's a million ways that you can monetize a YouTube channel with your own products, um, you know, with your own courses, uh, with affiliate marketing, sponsorships, things like that. What have your some of your favorites have been in that world? Um, in terms of income sources? Yeah, because everybody always does think of the ad that you're just trying to click to three, two, one, so the video can start. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. what everybody thinks of. But what what have some been some of your favorite monetization forms? Yeah, for sure. So you can't really. Um, 
you know, you can't really book ad revenue as kind of like a consistent source of revenue. Um, yeah, you can control the amount of videos you put out, but you can't really control the YouTube algorithm and the amount of views that you're going to get. Um, so I really like affiliate marketing. Um, so that's basically just using and recommending things that I use on a day-to-day basis anyway, and kind of just educating people about those things. So in my world, um, I personally use a brokerage called M1 Finance. I use that for my SEP IRA for my individual retirement account. And I liked it so much that I did a review about it. And, you know, I'm part of their affiliate program. So if people want to use that as well and they use my link, M1 Finance knows that I recommended, you know, Yovitsa or whoever, and they sign up for my, um, through my link, excuse me, and I get compensated for that. Um, the difference between me and maybe some other influencers is that, you know, I only recommend things that I personally use, um, like, and trust. Uh, I'm not just out here, you know, pouring out, you know, affiliate links because people see through that and that gets pretty old pretty quick. Um, but other than affiliate marketing, uh, I definitely think that your own digital products um, are really powerful because you take the time to create them once. Uh, so say, for example, it's like a course of some sort, you know, personal finance 101 or investing 101. You know, you you take the time to create that once, but you can sell it forever. And it kind of it's a one time effort. You know, you, you create once, sell twice kind of a thing. Yeah, it's about intellectual property, essentially. Exactly. And it's just creating cash flow and income over and over and over and over again. So, well, let me ask you this. So, and we talked a little bit when you and I connected via the phone, in a lot of ways, our shared background experience from uh, from the old world probably shaped our thinking when it comes to entrepreneurism and finance. But what got you interested in money per se at such a young age and, and wanting to explore? Yeah, that's a great question. It's really weird because um, I think people, you know, from the Balkans or just immigrants in general, um, you know, they don't really come to, you know, the United States or, you know, the UK or Germany or wherever their family ends up immigrating to. Um, We don't necessarily come from backgrounds of wealth. Otherwise, we probably wouldn't be immigrants in the first place, right? (laughs) If we're we're kings and queens and monarchs and dictators, you know, we're probably not going to leave that country and, you know, move somewhere else. So I noticed with most immigrants, um, they don't come from a financially literate background. Um, so I just, I was always interested in entrepreneurship and it wasn't necessarily about, you know, making money. It was about solving problems and providing value. And the money just inevitably follows that because you're, mm-hmm. kinda, you're, you're helping a certain pain point or solving a pain point. Um, so when I was little, um, so I'm, like I said, I'm 32 when I was actually like 11 or 12 years old, I used to sell Pokemon cards. And ironically, 20 years later, you know, people are now like selling Pokemon cards and it's all the craze. It's kind of funny. Um, so I feel like I was a early adopter on that. I used to sell mixtape CDs. I used to, you know, do a lot of stuff in college that was just kind of like, you know, entrepreneurial. And then when I hit 18, I just figured like, hey, I see all these like, you know, old rich white guys, you know, making all this money. You know, they typically do it through real estate, commercial real estate and, um, you know, stock market. So mm-hmm. I got really interested in investing in different companies. Um, when I was 18, I did pretty much what every 18-year-old does. Oh, I have Nike soccer cleats. I'm going to buy stock in Nike. Oh, I have an iPod. You know, that's kind of dating myself. But I have an iPod. Let me invest in Apple. You know, that kind of a thing. Um, so the reason I got interested, I guess, in money and personal finance in the first place um, is not because, you know, we we're in poverty or anything like that. You know, I always lived a you know decent middle class lifestyle, um, given our circumstances with my parents being immigrants. Um, but at the same time, it was always kind of like, hey, you know, I- I'm a car guy. I like cars. I like things that, you know, cost a little bit more money. You know, how do I make more money uh, in order to be able to afford those things? So it was never out of like a passion for money. I really couldn't care less about money. It's more about um having like those pillars in place of having a good financial foundation to be able to set you up to buy and do the things that you want to do. I think the key statement on the front end there was you were just solving problems and adding value and and the money just followed. What you were doing is you were focusing on the value piece, not the money piece. And it's also a good way, in my opinion, to not get greedy when you're focused on problem solving. You know, think about it. All being a merchant is a hundred years ago is somebody wants a product you go buy that product somewhere else for wholesale. You bring it to that piazza or whatever, and then somebody somebody buys it from you there. And you're solving a problem. You're making a spread on the difference. Mm-hmm. So when you can keep that mindset, it also allows for like creative juices to flow, which is, in my opinion, super important in podcasting, the world that I'm in. But also, I'm assuming probably super important in, in 
in the YouTube world, which like, how do you keep, I guess in my world, I just interview people and I go with their cool stories, but like, how do you keep coming up with videos? Cause you've got a bunch of videos, like millions upon millions and millions of views. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. So I feel like all creators kind of inevitably run into that writer's block or that, you know, that creativity block. Um, so a lot of the inspiration comes from questions that, you know, you would wonder on your own journey of, you know, financial literacy. Like I'm going to just simplify this, like how to balance a checkbook, how to create a budget, you know, things like that. Um, and then that just evolves over time. So you start to go into like trending topics like, Oh, you know, the federal reserve, they just printed, you know, trillions of dollars. How's that going to affect my, uh, my bank account kind of a thing, uh, and the value of my dollar. Uh, and then you go for more like sensationalist stuff. You know, I have some videos that have, you know, mil- literally millions of views. Those are the ones where it's like how car dealerships rip you off the truth, you know, where you're kind of swinging for the fences with not, not clickbait, but just, you know, it's a topic that's kind of inflammatory, you know, why Dave Ramsey's wrong about credit cards. And I know you're, you're in Tennessee and, you know, he's from Nashville as well. He's a good dude and he has a good foundation with the baby steps, but you know, he is wrong about some stuff and, and his way is good, but that's like personal finance 101. I feel like I take to personal finance 201 and 301. Um, yeah. So basically, you know, if you look at it from a pyramid, if you picture like the food pyramid, right? Like the old school Mm -hmm. food pyramid, you have carbs in the bottom, meats, meats, and, uh, other things in the middle. And then you have like, uh, fats, oils, and sweets at the top. That's kind of how I create my content. I, the carbs or the bottom is basically like evergreen content. So, you know, how to balance a checkbook, how to, you know, stuff like that stuff. That's always going to be relative years down the road. And then in the middle, um, I do things that are more like trending, you know, like, oh, central Mm -hmm. digital currencies are coming, you know, things like that, Bitcoin, stuff like that. Uh, And then the top, like I mentioned, is more of your like, you know, how car dealerships rip you off, why Dave Ramsey's wrong about credit cards, things that have the potential to go viral, if that makes Mm -hmm. sense. Yeah. Well, and I want to talk about how car dealerships rip you off video because it's funny. My sister, actually, her first job out of college was selling cars. I need to send her this video because I haven't sent it yet. But I love the video because her and I have talked about a lot of those concepts with, yeah. that, that you talked about in there. But talk to us. Like, how did you come up with that? And the response, I mean, I think it's got like 7.1 million views or something crazy like that. Like, what? how did that come to be? Yeah. So I actually sold cars. That was my first job out of college as well. So I finished. Uh, so I, did, I graduated in December of 2010 with a finance degree and, you know, I'm in Cleveland, Ohio, you know, we have a big, you know, financial presence here. We also have a big, you know, healthcare presence here with Cleveland Clinic. Um, But, you know, those are the two major sectors of employment here in Cleveland. However, you know, I'm 21, 22 years old and we're graduating into basically the biggest recession ever. This was after the great financial crisis of 2007, 2008. And this is basically when unemployment was almost at an all-time high after that recession. So not many people were hiring. So I had internships. You know, I was at Northwestern Mutual. I was at, you know, a bunch of different places during college. I thought, oh, you know, this is going to be a breeze getting a job. Well, I searched and searched and searched. And even with all the internships and all the experience I had, you know, know, no one was hiring. It was crazy. So I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to sit around, you know, you know, on unemployment or, you know, just sitting around waiting to, you know, for the phone to ring. I just said, screw it. You know, I'm going to go get a job selling cars. You know, I like cars, you know, I'm sociable. I like selling, you know, things like that. And, you know, that's, that was my first job. So I really saw the inside of that industry. Um, and don't get me wrong. There's, there's always, you know, good car sales people, good F and I managers, good, you know, sales managers, all that stuff. However, there were definitely a lot of bad apples and, you know, just the sales tactics kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. Now, keep in mind, this was basically January of 2011 uh, for about a year, year and a half I did this. And, you know, things have changed. You know, the Internet and technology is the great equalizer. So you can go Mm -hmm. on and get an idea of what cars are selling for and things like that. But, you know, in 2010, 2011, you know, we had the Foursquare. It was basically just, you know, the price of the car, the trade in, the down payment and the payments, if you will, And it was basically just a big shell game to kind of move some money from one area to the other and ultimately make as much profit for the dealership as possible, which is okay. That's fine. It was just the way they did it um, kind of Mm -hmm. left a bad taste in my mouth, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Being profitable is not inherently bad. It's just the way you get there. And that's, you know, some of the issues I have with, with a lot of different things. I mean, even credit card companies, like credit card companies are not inherently evil for wanting to make money. It's just that some of their tactics about, and some of the demographics they go after, yeah, it could be characterized as evil. That's right. Um, somebody who can get an American Express black card 
they probably don't have a problem paying that black card. It's the, <laughs> you know, it's the it's the seven hundred and fifty dollar limit that gets sent in the mail to somebody making twenty four thousand dollars a year. That's that's where we come into real problems. Exactly. Um, so you said you weren't just going to sit around um, doing nothing. Which man, I wish I could like plaster that over everybody's forehead. Um, it used to drive me insane when because i graduated right around the same time as you did it used to drive me insane when people were like i can't find anything i'm like dude go do something like anything it doesn't matter just have a job of some sort why Why do you think you your mindset was like i'm not just gonna sit around it's just my personality type man like i know some people you know they enjoy you know movies and playing video games and you know hobbies things like that i mean i have a lot of hobbies you know i'm a car guy i like sports you know all that good stuff but my point is is that my brain like literally won't allow me to just sit dormant. You know, I feel like I need to, um, there's something in me where I don't know if like you and I have like the genes of farmers or something like that, or for like <laughs> or something. I have no idea, but I feel like I need to go out in the field and like earn my, wow. dinner. you know what I mean? Like plow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's really weird. It's like, um, you know, I've, I've played soccer my whole life at a pretty high level. I feel like when you get in a good workout, you know, that steak tastes extra good. Or if you go mm-hmm. and cut the grass and do something, that beer or whatever tastes, you know, extra delicious, if that makes sense. You know, I feel like if you don't earn your keep and you're kind of just like, you know, oh, I played video games all day. Let me treat myself to a steak dinner. That steak doesn't taste the same as if you were to, you know, work in the field all day or if you earned it, if you will. So I guess that maybe it's just like that old school, like immigrant mentality, like, you know, you need to earn your keep. And I felt like, hey, you know, I'm sitting around all day, you know, applying to jobs and doing all this stuff. Like, I need to earn my keep. I felt like that part of my brain wasn't being satisfied. Well, and selling cars is an incredible experience. I think that's something that people our age, and especially people younger than us, they struggle with because they want like the sexy job with all the bells and whistles. And it's like, dude, going and selling cars, I've never done it, but I've been in sales most of my life of waited tables for years, like being rejected, having to learn like the emotional intelligence of how to read people, how to connect with people, how to fight for business, etc. Like those are really, really, really valuable skills. Absolutely. I completely agree. I feel like anyone uh, at least once during college or maybe even right after college, um, they should get into sales. And I feel like, um, I don't feel like I know, um, you know, when your lips are moving as a car salesman, everyone thinks you're lying. You know, however, it's usually the customers that are lying to your face, to be quite honest. But uh, that's a that's a topic for a different conversation. But um, being in sales is just exactly like you said. It helps you read the room. It helps you read your prospect. It helps you um, learn how to become a detective and ask the right questions to to be able to facilitate a sale. Um, a lot of people think salesmen are just like talkers, but that's that's those are bad salesmen. The best salesmen are detectives. You ask your way to a sale. You don't tell your way to a sale that makes sense. Uh, have you ever read the book, The Challenger Sale? I've heard of it. I haven't read it though. So I read it a couple of years ago and it was a really interesting concept. I would recommend it to anybody, anybody listening. Basically the, the entire premise of it is the most successful salespeople are the ones who bring something new and interesting to the table. So it, it has to change the way that the prospect is thinking about a problem mm. by just providing that new information. And it, it stems from this Harvard study that Basically, they said there was four types of salespeople. There was the challenger, the relationship builder, the lone wolf, and the worker. It was this massive study, and they figured out who outperformed or who performed the best out of those four categories. And it was like 99.8% the challenger, then like the hard worker, then the lone wolf, and then the relationship builder was actually at the very bottom. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And the entire premise of the book is you need all four to a degree. But the challenge, the, the relationship builder, everybody thinks it's a relationship builder that's closing the most deals. And it's like, no, the challenger is closing the most deals because you can have all the relationships in the world. But if you're not bringing anything new to the table that truly changes the way a problem needs to be solved, there's no reason for the prospect to take action. Yeah, that's I mean, logically, that makes 100 percent sense. And I feel like it's almost like if you know the movie Inception, you know, you're kind of mm-hmm. like planting that seed of you know, whatever you're trying to sell, you know, it's like, Hey, you're, you're basically presenting this, um, value proposition from a different angle that the prospect may have never thought of. So, yeah, I think that's, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So, and I remember I, we connected on LinkedIn a couple of days ago. So I looked at your, um, 
your work history. I saw you were at Marks and Miltep at one point. So you were in a commercial real estate space. You obviously sold cars. Now you're in, you're in YouTube. I mean, how would you describe, uh, I think you worked at a bank right before YouTube, I think. Yeah, um, at Key Bank. Yeah. So how would you describe your career trajectory to YouTube? And, and what are some of the things you picked up along the way, like from each job? Yeah. So my career trajectory was non-existent. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I feel like uh, I'll, I'll take you and your listeners like real quick, just elevator pitch through my whole career. Um, so sold cars, ended up selling a car to someone who worked in tech, uh, ended up working at a tech startup called eFuneral.com. So we we're basically lending tree uh, meets kind of like uh, Angie's List <laughs> for funeral homes, if that makes sense. Uh, That's interesting. Cool. Yeah, so I uh, had a little bit of equity in that company. We sold to a publicly traded company, uh, and then everyone got laid off. So, you know, the joys of working at a startup. But it was really cool because you have a lot of say, especially when your team is very small and you're in the, in the infancy of the business. So it's kind of like working at like a Facebook, you know, when you're the first, you know, literally the first employee. So that was cool. So I got some exposure to the venture capital world and, you know, startup money and all that stuff. And then that ultimately led to working for a private commercial real estate development firm. It was kind of like a boutique firm here in Cleveland. Um, mm -hmm. The owner or the CEO was, you know, typical, you know, rags to riches story. They lived in Doylestown, Ohio, which is basically a farm. Um, went to, he went to the University of Akron as well. And then basically fast forward to when he's, you know, in his mid fifties, he's landing helicopters on commercial real estate <laughs> buildings, you know, like yeah, yeah. Literally, you know, typical, your typical, like Donald Trump, like uh Caddyshack, you know, if you know Rodney Dangerfield from Caddyshack, he's like your yeah. typical real estate developer, but he was probably one of the best mentors I ever had. Just such a really, really good guy. And I learned so much from him, just how, you know, commercial banking works, commercial mortgages work, um, you know, loan to value, you know, pulling out as much money as possible from your properties and then, you know, reinvesting that. Um, 1031 exchanges. So if this is all, you know, um, French to your audience, basically just how to make the most money, keep the most money legally, you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, so I worked in, uh, basically leasing and sales acquisitions, dispositions. I managed our portfolio of about 750,000 square feet. Um, and then that actually went to, uh, my next job at Marcus and Milchap, where I worked as a commercial loan analyst. So we, instead of doing residential mortgages, as most of your audience can probably relate to, uh, we were mm -hmm. doing commercial mortgages, you know, uh, one, five, 10, 20, $30 million mortgages on, you know, commercial real estate. So that was really cool because you basically worked with wall street. You worked with CMBS commercial mortgage backed securities. Um, you know, you're working with guys that have, you know, New York, New York in the signature of their email address, which is pretty cool. So working with insurance companies, you know, things like that. Um, and then finally, that led to um, Key Bank, where the pace was a little bit slower, which is what I was looking for. I was a middle market uh, commercial loan analyst as well, um, so an underwriter. And all of this was just basically a culmination of, you know, kind of sales, you know, working in finance. Um, but my passion of being a financial advisor was never really scratched. You know, that itch was never scratched, which is why I started Whiteboard Finance in November of 17. And then after that, that's basically when it started to take off. So about a year and a half later, um, you know, that's when the channel really started getting some traction and I was able to leave Key Bank um, after about a, uh, I, th I think I was there for like less than a year actually, um, waited that three to six months to make sure YouTube was steady and, you know, the rest is history kind of a thing. I wouldn't say that the trajectory is non-existent. I would just say the trajectory is like a roller coaster of just fascination because you, <laughs> yeah. you, you, I mean, it, that's super cool to just go through all those different just aspects of business because think about all the things you picked up along the way. For sure. And I think to be quite honest, uh, Jovica, the difference between me and most other financial YouTubers, um, so there's different categories of financial YouTubers. You have the kids that are 20 years old that have literally no life experience that are regurgitating CNBC articles, then you have the people that actually are, you know, real estate investors or stock market investors um, with no like formal financial experience, which is fine. Um, and then you have people that are like literally, you know, financial advisors or people that have worked in finance. So I think the thing that sets me apart is that I can teach things, but I can also give real world context, which is pretty cool in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's the most powerful part about the videos that I watched that you've put up. The fact that you're not a licensed financial advisor makes your videos a 
10,000 times better. <laughs> I genuinely from experience. <laughs> yeah, I genuinely genuinely mean that. The fact that you're not beholden to Finra sending you a letter and saying, "Why are you talking about this?" or your broker dealer or your whoever, you know, forcing you to put a video through compliance, which is literally the bane of everybody's existence. Like there is true, like there is serious quality to just having that information and and being able to come truly from a teaching perspective. And I think that's why it's resonated with people. And, you know, when I see the 20 year olds talking about trading options or whatever, like I've had the CEO of, of an options for trading firm on this podcast. I guarantee you those 20 year olds don't know what they're talking about compared to O'Brien Woods, who was on this freaking podcast. Yeah. And I'm not I'm not saying that to disparage anyone. I'm, I want everyone to start a YouTube channel. I really think yeah. it's the best way to get exposure in 2020 and moving forward. Uh, my point is, is that, you know, if you're following someone, um, you a they need to kind of prove that they know what they're talking about. Um, so if they have a great track record with options trading, for example, you know, that's great. Uh, my point is, is that when you have like 20 year olds talking about like, you know, how to start, like how to save for your family. It's like, dude, your balls dropped like two weeks ago. What are you talking about? <laughs> like, how, can you, how can you give this perspective? You're like 18 years old. <laughs> yeah. Life needs to kick you in the face a couple of times before yeah. you start talking about this stuff. Exactly. And I don't know if you feel this way, like being in my thirties, I even feel like I shouldn't be talking about half the stuff I talk <laughs> yeah, exactly. about on this podcast. Yeah, I agree 100%. So I don't know if your audience thinks I'm, you know, some asshole or whatever, but I'm just being honest. Like you need to live life first to be able to give that perspective. So um, that's just my opinion, but who knows? No, look, man, if they listen to this podcast, you're not being an asshole. It's just that good old fashioned Serbian honesty. <laughs> yeah, just telling <laughs> like it is. Yeah, they're they're used to it if they're, if they're 91 episodes, 92 episodes into this. So let me ask you this. What's the, what's the story behind the whiteboard? Yeah, so I, I thought it was um, a lot easier than using markers and paper. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm, I see these other YouTubers; they're so funny. My good buddy, uh, my good buddy Ryan Scribner, he has a great ch- uh, finance channel as well. He has, I think, like six or seven hundred thousand subscribers. Um, he's using one of those. If you guys remember from like elementary school, where the teacher has like the the paper that flips up over itself, like on the yes, you know. Um, yeah. and I'm like, dude, his handwriting has to be like perfect every time, and all this stuff. So I'm like, you know what? I feel like a dry erase board would be a lot uh, easier and cleaner. Um, so that's why I went with the whiteboard. And I also feel that um, I have kind of like the heart of a teacher. I really do enjoy teaching and helping people, um, and I feel like the easiest way to convey that is through visual. Um, stuff, which is easily done on the whiteboard. So a lot of people are visual learners. Um, So my brother-in-law and I, we went on Craigslist and we found this big ass whiteboard. This thing's huge and it wouldn't fit in his Subaru. So we were literally in Cleveland, (laughs) Ohio in like October, November with our hands out the window, holding this thing on his roof. It was so funny. It's like old school, you know, like Serbian villager. Uh, If you can picture that, (laughs) you know, it's something on the roof of their Yugo, uh, except the Yugo was a Subaru. Um, so he set up the whiteboard and the rest is history. That is awesome. Yeah, the, the Subaru is a little more reliable than a Yugo. <laughs> <laughs> just just a little bit. Not just a, just not a tiny bit. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh my gosh. Um okay, so you put the you put the you put the whiteboard together, which again I think is a genius concept because like the simplicity of it is just awesome. You just kind of sit there and you're like, okay, I'm drawing this out. And it does look like you're a teacher. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty efficient on that front. But so you mentioned some of these other uh, YouTubers and, and finance people. And like, is there like a community? Do you guys like have a, a group text and talk to each other? Or like, how does this work? Like, I've seen, I saw you had a video with, uh, with uh, uh, me, Kevin. Uh-huh. So, uh, which he's pretty, pretty big on YouTube, like, especially with like the stimulus bills and all that stuff. But like, do you guys just like hang out? What's the story there? Yeah, so there's definitely, I'd say there's pockets. Um, the biggest community is FinCon for sure. So FinCon is really big. Um, and I recommend anyone that's interested in finance or you know personal finance, either blogging, podcasts, or YouTubers now, which is like the up and coming you know cohort, if you will. Um, FinCon is a great community. They have a Facebook page. They have conferences every year. And you basically see all the people that you see online in person. And it's really cool because you get to meet everyone, you know, meet them in person and get a drink with them, um, kind of, you know, shoot the shit with them, if you will. But um, other than that, you know, I'm in a personal group chat that I almost consider, you know, like a mastermind, but it's with friends, mm-hmm. you know, so it's with, you know, a couple other YouTubers that are pretty big. They have, 
you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And we kind of just, we're just friends, man. That's the beauty of it. It's everyone's kind of learning together. Um, we kind of talk shop, we kind of talk strategy, but most, most of the time we're kind of just, you know, just buddies in a group chat, if you will. But yeah, I'd say there's definitely pockets. You kind of have the guys on the West coast, you kind of have the guys on the East coast. Um, you know, there's a lot of females that are up and coming in the space, which is good to see Um, a lot of minorities, which is good to see. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a big, happy community. Sometimes some people beef with each other, but I try and stay out of that because <laughs> life is too yeah. short. It's not worth it. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm definitely in a couple of group chats with other, you know, more prominent YouTubers as well. So I've been in, in, invited to a couple of events that are related to, to the podcast, which it's, it's really weird. I don't, I mean, I'm sh- your audience is significantly bigger than mine and it's just a different, a different medium. But like once people start reaching out to you for stuff, it gets a little weird when you start something like this and you put out your first episode and you're like, I hope like five people listen to it. And then it takes off and all of a sudden you're getting emails about like, Hey, would you like to come to this event? Hey, would you like for this? You know, can we sponsor this product? Hey, can you have this guest? Was there a weird moment for you where you were like, Oh crap, this is, this is real. Yeah. So that was actually that how car dealerships rip you off video. Um, that video, I think today, as you mentioned, is like 7.1 or 7.2 million views. So that video was my first viral video. Um, and if anyone's familiar with the back end of the YouTube analytics, um, you just start to see your real time views going up. Like it's literally like the S and P 500 for the past 10 years, just up and to the right, <laughs> you know, and it doesn't, yeah. stop. it's crazy. Um, so the funny thing is, um, my, my channel was originally called whiteboard finance. And I tried to make it a little bit more personal with, you know, Marcos Vladek whiteboard finance. Um, and then after that video went viral, my LinkedIn was like exploding. Cause you know, on LinkedIn, mm. how it shows you who's looked at your profile. It was all these like sales managers from all these car dealerships and people were like blowing me up, you know, with emails and direct messages. Cause they can see my full name. So yeah. after that, I was kind of just like, you know what, screw this. So I just changed the uh, channel name to Marco uh, Whiteboard Finance in general, like just keeping it the first name only. Um, but yeah, that wake up call was after that video went viral because then you start getting approached by, you know, a million companies saying, hey, we'd love to sponsor your next video. And hey, you know, this video was good. This video was terrible. You know, you're the worst. You're the best. You know, it's a lot of hate, a lot of love. So um, that video helped a lot of people, but also rubbed a lot of other, you know, car sales professionals the wrong way as well. But the funny thing is when you have the people that are like, you know, I sold cars for 30 years and this guy is hundred percent correct kind of a thing. So yeah, 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 that's always funny too. But yeah, just to, um, answer your question. Yeah, that was definitely that first wake up call. And it's a little bit, you know, it's weird at first because to be quite honest with you, Jovita, I'm a private person. Like I don't want to be on some like hit TV show. I don't want to be on the Jersey shore of like finance. Like I don't want people to like really know who or what I am. Um, I like, I like that people watch my channel and they get value from it, but you know, I'm, I'm a private person. I'm not out here like posting pictures of like, you know, uh, my house, my kids, you know, stuff like that. Like, I just, I don't know. I want to keep it kind of on the DL to be quite honest. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. And so I want to piggyback on something you said just a second ago. Uh, sometimes people saying you're the worst, the hate. Okay. How much of the feedback you get from people online, would you say is positive versus negative? And then in the real world, when people recognize you, how much of it would you say is positive versus negative? Yeah, that's a great question, man. And it goes back to your point of kind of having thick skin with like rejection and in sales. Um, so I'd say for every like 40 or 50 comments that I get, maybe one is like, neutral to negative and then one out of a hundred is like hey you have a punchable face you know that kind of thing (laughs) um so you know a very very small percentage i'd say one percent is negative um if you look at my ratios of my likes to dislikes all my videos are 97 98 99 percent likes to dislikes so it's really you know two or three people out of a hundred that may not like what i'm saying or what i'm doing or how i look or how i speak And to be quite honest, I really couldn't care less. Um, The only thing that I genuinely care about is that people know that I'm coming from a good place. And that's why I started this channel in the first place. And I'd say 99% of people understand that. Um, To answer the second part of your question, um, getting recognized in person, um, it's only ever been positive. And I feel like the reason for that is A, you know, like I said, 99 out of 100 people really like what I'm doing. And then B, you know, those trolls that are vocal, the one out of the hundred, 
Um, they're just people that are, you know, living in their mom's basement with Cheeto stained sweatpants, to be quite honest. They're people that are just miserable with their own life. And I always think of that. It's like, you know, if this person is taking the time out of their day to dislike a YouTube video and leave a nasty comment, they're probably just not in a good place mentally. And if their situation changed, I guarantee you they probably wouldn't be a troll in the first place. And everyone is Mike Tyson behind the keyboard, to be quite honest. So <laughs> that's another yeah. reason. <laughs> yeah, no, it's I've asked this question. I haven't asked it very often on the podcast, but I've asked it to the people I've interviewed in private. I've yet to have a single person say that uh, they've had a single negative reaction in person with anyone. Yeah, it's been literally zero. I mean, I, I know that from personal experience. So and the feedback on the podcast, I've talked about this before, has been like overwhelmingly positive. I mean, just like you, like 99.9% positive. But then some jackass from time to time will like just send some ridiculous email. And I'm sitting over here like, and, and or they'll send me a, a, a Instagram DM and I, I'll go to their Instagram and I'm like, bro, I could eat you. <laughs> like, you're, like you're five foot three. <laughs> like, what is your, what is your problem? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I want to, I want to I wanna pivot to this. I'm really curious about this because you and I have a lot of sim similar personality traits, but I know you're married. What, remind me what is, your, your wife's still in school, right? She, well, she just graduated. Thank God. Um, she's, so she's a registered nurse. She has her bachelor's in nursing and, uh, she just finished a three-year program, um, to become a master's or a nurse practitioner, if you will. That's uh, right. Yeah. So she needs to take boards and then knock on wood, she will be a full-time, uh, family nurse practitioner here pretty soon. So nurse practitioner, my wife is a teacher by training, spent years and years teaching in elementary school. I do feel like there are a lot of similarities between nurses and teachers and personalities, both very stable jobs, both very stable benefits. How often does your wife go, what in the hell are you doing? Why do you always have a new idea for some crap? Because <laughs> I get that all the time. Yeah, that's literally our entire relationship summarized. So, you know, I've been with my wife total, uh, including dating for, I'd say five years now. We've been married for three, um, three and a half years. Um, so when she first met me, I was creating these uh, fiberglass bird feeders that have <laughs> cups on them and they stick onto your window. I called it nature's window. Dude, it's <laughs> incredible. It's the best thing I've ever created. So it's a, it's a see-through bird feeder where you put the bird seed in it and the birds come to your window. And you can literally see them eating. Like it sounds corny as hell, but it's so cool. And uh, I created this and I was going, I was talking through like Chinese suppliers through Amazon or excuse me, I was going to sell it on Amazon, but I was talking through uh, to Chinese suppliers through Alibaba and the drop ship. Yeah. Like not even drop shipping. Like literally I had a garage like full of bird feeders. So I sold all of them, but I realized like, uh, Amazon is kind of like a zero sum game where you have like the bigger players that just kind of like lower their prices to, to where you can't make any money and they kind of just price you out. Um, so that was one idea. I was doing yellow letters with wholesaling real estate. Um, what else was I doing? I was going to start a food truck. Like I, I had a million ideas, you know, like I said, I was always just kind of like a natural hustler, if you will. And then she's the one that's like, you know, working 12 hour shifts and like breaking your back, lifting, you know, 400 pound patients. And I'm over here trying to build like bird feeders. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so it's like, I don't know, she's, she has the patience of a saint, but now thank God, you know, something finally stuck, which is whiteboard finance. And the biggest takeaway to your audience is because I stuck with it. Um, you know, I didn't make a penny for, you know, a year and a half to almost two years of having my channel. And then all of a sudden, it was kind of like that hockey stick growth. And it's kind of, you know, settled down since then. But it's definitely still, you know, a full-time income. So uh, I guess the advice out of that or the nugget out of that story is that you need to stick with something for it to work. You know, nothing really happens overnight. Yeah. No, it's, dude, as you're describing your ideas, I'm just thinking of parallels in my life. And just Tamara, my wife's name is Tamara. She'll be like, what is happening right now? And I'm like, I don't know, babe. Let's, I'm just going, I'm going to try it. We're going to see if it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Like in her brain, she's like, if you, do, if you don't think it'll work, why are you doing it? I'm like, well, I, I'm not sure it won't work. I'm 99% positive it won't work, but there's that 1% chance it might. That's right. Yeah. You know, it, like it's crazy people. So I just moved into a new house. My neighbors, they're older, you know, they're probably in their, you know, sixties, maybe seventies to be honest. And they're good people. And they're asking me like, hey, you know, are you a doctor? I was like, no, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a YouTuber. And they're like, so, oh, you sell ads for YouTube. I'm like, they're thinking like old school radio, you know, advertising mm -hmm. sales. 
And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm literally on YouTube. Like I have a channel and I make money from the ads, you know? And they're like, oh, wow. And you can still tell like they didn't understand how, you know, I got paid. Um, and it's just kind of funny because, you know, to your point, it's like, who the hell knows what's going to work or what's not going to work. But the 1% that does, those are the people that had the audacity um, or the chutzpah, you know, to use you know, a, a, a Jewish term, is you had the balls, dude. You had the balls to do something and kind of go off the beaten path and you're, you're rewarded for the amount of risk that you take on as an entrepreneur. Yeah. Speaking of risk and entrepreneur, this is something I would be thinking about if I was a YouTuber. The big fear in the YouTube world is you are beholden to the algorithm, okay? And and how many views you get and all that. So you're building up this business on YouTube, but are you doing anything else to offset the risk of what if YouTube disappears someday? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a great question. I feel like every major YouTuber who's relying on ad revenue um, is doing it the wrong way. Uh, ad revenue should probably be, hopefully be, um, the smallest portion of your income. Um, the reason I say that is because, you know, I can make an off-color joke tomorrow and get demonetized by Big Brother, you know what I mean, mm -hmm. hey, the YouTube algorithm. Um, so what I'm, what I'm doing is I'm building out whiteboardfinance.com, and this is basically going to be the home of, you know, my digital products, um, my review articles, excuse me, um, you know, just reviewing different things with affiliate links. Like, hey, is this brokerage any good? Yes, it is. No, it's not. If you're interested in signing up, click here. And then you get compensated for that affiliate link, as we mentioned earlier in the podcast. Um, I'm trying to turn that into kind of like the hub. That way I'm not on YouTube algorithm island and I have my own little island of fans and followers and it's my own property as opposed to just renting space from Google, basically. Yeah, you own the domain, you own the website, you own... The, yep. the the information the email list you know your audience basically all that good stuff yeah if you had to pick something that you wish people understood about finance and i know that's a hard because you probably want to tell people six thousand things because that's what i want to do mm -hmm. but if you had to pick one thing that you wish people would get really good at about finance and you think that would help our nation and society as a whole what do you think that one thing would be so what's the secret to losing weight uh, well, weighing yourself every single day and consistency. Well, that too, but it's very simple. It's burning more calories than you take in, right? So if you want to yeah. lose weight, it's, it's just very simple. Uh, we get clouded with all these informational products and magic pills and strategies and diets and all this stuff. It's simply living on less than you make. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Never have to make another YouTube video ever again. So <laughs> if you make a hundred grand a year, and you save, you pay yourself first, let's call it, I don't know, 10, 15%, and then you live on the rest, well, there you go. You're, you have a sustainable household. Now, if you're in Congress and you're just printing trillions of dollars, um, you know, our GDP is literally, um, I think our debt to GDP at this point is uh, above 100% for sure. Um, but my point is, is as a nation, we are spending or taking on more debt or printing more money than we actually produce in value in terms of gross domestic product, in terms of GDP. So if you run your household like a business and you spend less than you make, um, you will always be in a good place financially, um, given, given that you're doing all the right things with your money. I'm not talking like saving 10% and then buying, you know, nice cars and big screen TVs. I'm talking saving 10% and kind of making that money, you know, work for you down the road to build wealth. I think we're going to say the same thing. I'm just going to word it a little bit differently. To me, it's cash flow management. And how mm -hmm. do you up? So obviously live below your means, but how do you also up your cash flow? How do you buy assets that actually pay you instead of you paying them? Exactly. You know, how, how do you, <clears throat> I, I, I mean, here in Tennessee, like, dude, you can go to Memphis where I grew up and you can go buy a $75,000 house. Your down payment on that as an investment property will be what, 15 grand ish. Um, your mortgage with insurance and and property management all in is going to be like 600 650 you can rent those places for a grand a month mhm mm it's like why are you buying patio furniture for 4 <laughs> grand <laughs> and by the time you buy your your uh or or your living room set uh your your guest room set and your your patio furniture you spent $15,000 
when I'm over here like, dude, go buy a property for 15 grand and make $400 a month. And if you want, freaking go get the the 0%, you know, 48 months, whatever on the furniture and let the property pay it off. And at the end of that 48 months, you have a property you've paid off and the furniture. Like yeah. Just, yeah. just a hypothetical thing. It's like, manage cash flow run run your family you need to have a cfo run your family as if you're a bank that's right. right that that's that's how how you know if i could just beat that into everybody's into everybody's head that would be that would be my thing on it yeah i think um so the old school way is to measure wealth you know your assets minus your liabilities that's your net worth that's like the baby boomer uh, mentality yeah. and that truly is the the measuring stick you know if you have People don't really wealthy people. They don't care about how much they make per year. It's about their net worth. That's their mm-hmm. true measuring stick. Um, however, with millennials and people our age, um, we're we're more focused on cash flow and basically just covering our nut. You know, can you cover the nut of your expenses with assets that throw off money or cash flow? If you if you can, and if that nut is covered, then you are literally financially free. You're independent because your assets are basically throwing off enough cash to cover off to cover your expenses excuse me so i think that that's the new way of looking at it because people you know our age we're not really wanting to work till we're, till we're 65 and getting the gold watch from ford motor company like congratulations you worked 80 hours a week in the factory and here's your gold watch now you're going to die in 10 years kind of a thing so i think we're more about living in the moment you know technology being the great equalizer that it is you know, I could literally live anywhere in the world with an internet connection. And as long as I have a camera, a whiteboard and an internet uh, connection, I can literally continue my business. So that's the beauty of kind of like this laptop lifestyle um, that we're living. Um, the second thing is, is that if you own all these assets and they are throwing off this cash flow every month, that is basically one pillar of four. So I gave you a quick answer of, you know, calories burned versus calories in. Um, you know, spend less than you make. Obviously, everyone knows that. The true way to build sustainable wealth is four pillars. You have the income pillar, which you just talked about. You have like the chaos hedge. You know, if shit were to hit the fan, you're hedged with, let's call it, I don't know, gold, Bitcoin, whatever. Um, Then you have basically the other components of opportunity. So maybe having a little bit of cash on the sideline. Um, And then Basically, the other one, I for some reason, I'm like drawing a blank. It's like 10 in the morning. <laughs> I can't remember the fourth pillar. I'm an idiot. <laughs> I have no idea how this is happening. Uh, but basically, it's covering all your bases. You know, you have the income portion, which allows you to live. If you were to get sick or lose your job tomorrow, you have the chaos hedge. You have the opportunity. And then the fourth one, I don't know why is escaping me. I sound like an idiot right now. <laughs> I need more coffee. It's okay. I'll just link it to whiteboard finance. I'm sure it's somewhere. <laughs> yeah, I just had a complete brain fart. My bad. But does that make sense with those four pillars? Well, the three that I explained. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that makes total sense. And it, <laughs> well, and it's it's how do you get to the point where net worth is relevant? Like what you said earlier, like the truly wealthy, like Mitt Romney or somebody like that who's worth two hundred fifty million. Like, yeah, that's the barometer for him because I guarantee you, two hundred fifty million in net worth is spending off more than enough cash flow for him to live whatever lifestyle he wants to. For sure. And I meant um, growth. Sorry, growth is the fourth one, duh, which is, you know, yeah. stocks and things like that. Sorry, I was just having a complete brain fart. It's okay. It's life. <laughs> um, we're, we're, well, look, here, I'll save you. We're coming up on time anyway. So, um, let me, okay, final question. This question I ask everybody. Knowing all that you know, okay, and knowing all that you know about yourself at this stage of your life, if you could go back to 18-year-old Marco, okay, wide-eyed, bushy-tailed, what is one piece of advice you would give him? Uh, buy Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, all joking aside, you know, obviously we're not, you know, back to the future where Biff gets the almanac and knows all the, you know, stocks and, you know, sports results and all that stuff. Um, other than that, other than like, hey, if it's truly life advice and not just, hey, buy Bitcoin or, you know, buy Tesla shares or whatever. Um, I think the life advice that I would give myself is definitely starting starting my own business sooner and not mm-hmm. getting so uh, enamored or focused on that career trajectory. So when I was 18, I was all about like, oh, you know, if you become an accountant, you know, in three years, you become a manager, then you become a, you know, an, a partner, and then you become this and that, and you have a proper career trajectory. Um, I think that you should take as many risks as possible 
early on because then you have time to um, kind of bounce back from those um, failures, if you will. I hate to use that word failures, but they're all learning experiences in a way. Um, but also, I would tell myself to get onto YouTube sooner. Um, YouTube, you know, obviously started in about 2006, 2007. Um, I truly feel that in this day and age, in 2020, it's it's replaced cable television as people's you know primary source of you know entertainment, if you will, along with all the other streaming services. But I would say that you know pick pick a niche and stick with it and be consistent. Um, fail early and often, but try and uh, as soon as you get that little bit of traction that you talked about, that one percent that may work, the ninety nine percent that doesn't then go all in on that 1% idea, um, which is kind of what I did with whiteboard finance. I just, I just wish I would have started sooner. If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Again, like you said, 2020 going back to the future and saying, Hey, you know, what, what's the hidden opportunity that I didn't see when I was 18 and, and what could I open my eyes to? Um, Marco, this was a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. Sorry for um, rambling a little bit and completely having a brain fart at the end there. But um, this was really cool because I feel like you and I are very similar and our perspective is similar, which sometimes for the audience maybe isn't the best thing. Sometimes it's good to have a yin and a yang. Um, but at the same time, you know, when you and I spoke on the phone, I could tell that, you know, you and I had our values were aligned. And if your audience likes you for you, you know, then I think that they will enjoy this podcast because you and I are pretty similar. Yeah, 100%. I, I really enjoyed this episode. And, you know, like we talked on the phone, we've never met in person, but I'm sure we'll we'll get together at some point when this COVID thing is over. Um, let let the people know where can, they, where can they find you. Obviously, Whiteboard Finance on YouTube and then whiteboardfinance.com. Any other place that you want to um, redirect them to? Yeah, thank you. So um, I'm, I'm somewhat active on Twitter, um, at whiteboardfin, F-I-N. And then on Instagram, I'm more active there. Um, which is at Whiteboard Finance on Instagram. So whiteboardfinance.com, Whiteboard Finance on YouTube, Whiteboard, uh, Whiteboard Fin on Twitter, and Whiteboard Finance on Instagram. Awesome, awesome. And we'll have all that in the show description as well. But as always, folks, thanks for listening. If you have people you want us to interview, if you have compliments, if you have constructive criticism, keyword constructive, you can't just complain, you have to offer a solution. That's the, that's the big part. Uh, info at mmcip.co. And we'll talk to you guys soon.